Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hello, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. Today, we are talking about the winner of the 1991 Newberry Award, Maniac McGee by Jerry Spinelli. I have a citation from Carcass Reviews. It doesn't say who wrote it. Anyway, from April 2nd, 1990, it says, an occasionally long-winded but always affecting parable-like story about racism and ignorance. Jeffrey McGee is twice homeless, once involuntarily at age three when his parents plunge with a high-speed trolley off a bridge. The second time, eight years later, when he voluntarily leaves the troubled home of his aunt and uncle. Jeffrey's subsequent year-long flight generates a host of legends. His sudden appearances and astonishing athletic prowess earn him the name Maniac, and his just as sudden disappearances ensure his fame. Hang on. I want to check one thing in the book. One thing that that does drive me crazy about that particular citation is that in no way is this book long-winded. I think this book grabs you from the very first paragraph, and it's super readable all the way through, even though it's handling lots of social issues in a way that other books would make overwrought or boring. It's totally compelling. It's compelling, but even though it's short and even though it packs a huge punch and it, I mean, it is very readable and very enjoyable in a lot of ways. I, I might be the only person on the planet that this book makes me so sad. Well, it is. It's a very sad book. No, but it makes me incredibly sad. Like it doesn't, to have some of the things that are talked about in this book juxtaposed against like these tall tale moments is really brilliant. And the writing is really brilliant, but it makes me so sad that he is such like a parentified child and like, he's taking care of himself and just taking care of adults and like trying to solve these huge problems. And he's just so small and it like upsets me so much. It is. It is upsetting. Like, like, and I get, yeah, it is upsetting, but it's really, I don't know. I have so much respect for Jerry Spinelli for lots of reasons, but this book is in my edition, all of 184 pages and it covers so much, right? Terrible stuff happens to him. But the emotions, like you're right about the tall tale aspect, right? It takes it to these heights, right, that are just super entertaining and fun to read. But the depths are there to set it off. And so the sad parts just offset the bright parts, you know? It goes back and forth so well and in such a balanced way. Like you have to respect just the masterful writing. Definitely. I I think I just... I just always, when I finish reading this, I always feel like, I feel like I've read a Russian novel or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't, I don't really know how to put it that way. I Because I just feel like there's very few other middle grade novels that make me feel so sad. And there's so much in this book that's not sad. And so it makes me feel like an anomaly. We've covered that Jeffrey McGee, who's known as Maniac McGee, ran away. He was orphaned, and then he lived with his aunt and his uncle. And then he ran away from their two-toaster house. Yeah, so his aunt and uncle, like, totally hated each other, but they don't believe in divorce. So they just basically cohabitated and didn't share anything. Like, nothing. 
and just hated each other the whole time. And he finally like had enough and ran away. And the funny thing is they never again mention them in the book. So like he's famous in his original hometown, but, but they never come looking for him. Right? <laughs> like they're yeah. just like, eh, he's gone. Yeah. And in that way, it really has, it starts off with that kind of tall tale feeling, right? Like, like he was born of the earth or he like birthed himself or he popped out of a pod, a seed pod, you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> like I, I have a confession. I've had this book on my shelf for probably a decade and the cover is so familiar and the name is so familiar that I assumed that I had read it. And when I went to reread it ahead of us recording, I realized that I have never read this book before. Are you serious? Yeah. And even my husband was shocked, right? Like it's, it's the fodder of, of middle school you know, English classes everywhere. I've never read it before. And so I'm coming at this with an exclusively like 40-year-old adult perspective. <laughs> well, I had not, I didn't read it in school where I grew up. We, everything that happened, trends, books, everything, we were like five to 10 years behind everyone else. So like that was, even though this one, when I was in middle school, I didn't know about it. And so I remember reading it in college as part of a library school class, and then I read it again later as a as an adult, and then I read it for the reread it for this. And yeah, I mean, I I just can't I can't believe that it elicits the same reaction in me every single time I've read it. Which is it's be- it's a beautiful story. It's really funny. It wants I I just want to curl up in a ball and cry. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's when I say that it makes me sad, like I'm not being hyperbolic, like it makes me so sad. And I think it's incredible the way that like a book like because I feel so jaded at this point. I've read so much. I've I've know all these storylines and plots and characters and all this stuff. And the fact that this book still makes me feel so sad, <laughs> it you know, it makes it warms my like tin can heart, you know? <laughs> Well, I don't know. Like the thing for me is that it reminded me so forcibly of other things. Like as I was going through it, it I, I'll get to probably more of it with read likes. But like on the first page, I was like, "Ooh, it's the Sandlot," and so that, <laughs> it was really entertaining to me that they then incorporated, you know, some of the plot lines from the Sandlot. I don't even know which one came first, and I'm sure that nobody was copying anybody else. But it was just like. Mm-hmm. When you talk about tall tales, it has that specific tall tale feeling that the Sandlot had where, like, the kid's view of everything is super exaggerated. Mm-hmm. But it's really fun at the same time. And so mm-hmm. it is It is in, incongruous that such sad things are happening in that tone, in that fun kid exaggerated tone. Mm-hmm. Because it is. It's such a, like a, it's such a concentrated punch of, I don't know, just super readable, like a fun to read over heightened kid experience with like a huge, a huge, you know, focus on racism and homelessness and just being alone in the world and like what's valuable, like all of that concentrated together. It does make it really intense emotionally. Uh, Mania Mickey is an orphan and then and then when he's 11, he leaves his aunt and uncle's house, the house of two toasters. <laughs> yes, because they hate each other and he can't stand it. So he just, during a school concert, like starts screaming, talk, talk, talk to each other because they don't, 
they don't talk to each other. And he just ran out and started running and apparently ran 200 miles to his hometown. Where no one remembers him because he was so little when he left. But it is a community, a town that's divided into east and west. There's a black side and a a white side. Mm -hmm. And what ensues are a series of tall tales, kind of amazing feats that Maniac McGee pulls off. But also three distinct sections of a story where he is with three different families and or creates three different families. And he plays three different roles. It is very interesting. When he rolls into town, he sort of accidentally either impresses or alienates everybody that he meets, you know, through accidental feats of athletic prowess, which is interesting. And that just sort of sets the tone for his legendary status before he becomes embroiled with these three different uh, family relationships. Yeah. So the first one ends up being, well— He's walking outside the school and Amanda Beal, a girl after my own heart. Oh, my God. Yes. Who has her suitcase full of books because she doesn't want her little little siblings to touch her books. He bumps into her and the suitcase pops open and letting him borrow a book, which she would never normally do. But the bell's about to ring. She's in a tight spot and she's like, okay, fine. You can borrow this one book. Her mother was shocked. Yeah. But this bully. Mars Bar. Yeah. Mars Bar, who ends up being a big figure in the book. He rips a page out of the book and, or he actually, he like rips up the book, right? I'm sorry. I can't remember that part. Yeah. No, let's see. He's just bullying him, and he ha- since since uh, Maniac McGee has this book, he's like, ooh, ooh, what book is that? And, like, just starts pulling out pages. Only it turns out that it's Amanda Beale's book, and even Mars Bar knows and respects Amanda Beale, and so when <laughs> she sees what's happening, she basically, like, flies in and ends it. She invites him home? Yeah, I think so. Amanda Beale flies in to mostly rescue her book, but she ends up rescuing Maniac as well and bringing him home to her family, which is like the most nice, welcoming. Like, once once Amanda Beale's mother realizes sort of the position that Maniac McGee is in, like, he actually has no place to live, she like drags him back and makes him stay. And they just like, feed him and they don't question anything and he's like totally baffled but really happy to accept the hospitality at first and then he becomes actually part of the family and that part is so touching like the all the like the little kids hanging on him and like him becoming kind of a bridge between Amanda and her younger siblings and it's just so like beautiful and like you can tell he belongs and he knows that he's part of the family yeah and he's like willing to do the things that like as a parent of small children like I totally get this like you get jaded right you're like oh god just leave me alone for one minute even though they're adorable and wonderful and so like everybody's sick of taking baths with them and reading stories to them because they're just like little wild monsters, but he's happy to do it because he doesn't have that kind of home life. He never has. Mm -hmm. Um, So he does take over those, those activities and it just, it's really beautiful. 
it's just really interesting to me to see him finally like settle into being a child. Yeah. Like that's the part about him taking like being in the bath and reading stories and stuff. He gets to be a kid, not just like a tween or like a kid. He gets to be a tiny kid and be safe in this in this family. And that's why I think it's all the more like horrifying to me when he realizes that the greater community have a lot of questions and distrust of him. I know that part really is sad and and disillusioning. Like he's so happy with them. Right. And I I have to admit that like some of the nineties attitude of like, I don't see color is a little bit at, at play here for me. Like uh, I, I find it, uh, a little disingenuous on the writer's part to assume that Maniac McGee like is so colorblind to that degree that it really has that effect. But the whole neighborhood is not that way. And the more that they're, <sighs> what am I trying to say here? The more he becomes aware of the neighborhood's attitude and becomes disillusioned with the situation, like, the sadder and more grown up he seems. Yeah. Like there's part where they're all playing in a big water hydrant on a really hot day and some old man in the neighborhood comes up and calls him Whitey and tells him to go home. And like, that's a really sad moment. It is a sad moment, but it's also to have a white kid have to confront the idea of not being the default. Yeah. In some way. Right. So, I mean, I think that's important. I think that's a really good moment. And I think, but I think it's sad that like, I think in the story it's necessary, but I think it's sad that Maniac takes it so to heart and to the point where he deprives the Beals and himself of their like family relationship that they had been building. Yeah. But he is a child. So, I mean, I, you know. Yeah. I mean, and you see, it's it's hard not to see it from the adult perspective, right? Like you don't I think it's a bit much to expect an oppressed community to automatically embrace, you know, a white kid who's availing himself of the hospitality avail like not everything is ours as white people, right? Yeah. Like yeah, of course. not everything belongs to us. And so like, especially in the vaguely, like what even, does it, do they ever mention a time frame? No, I mean, it's, it's like now, like, you know, it's like a, a now kind of thing. You or think like so? a, Well, not now, but it's like a. I think it sets itself to be in the 80s, 90s. I mean, I I don't think, you know, but like it it doesn't set, it doesn't like give a year, but it's like when the book was written, that's how it feels, at least to me. Because to me, it has that kind of vaguely 50s, 60s feel, like when, when places would really be segregated. But places are still segregated. Well, I know, but like officially. Yeah, but I don't I I got the feeling that it wasn't officially segregated. Like I got the feeling that it was like it was a geographic segregation that had been upheld. Hmm. Not that it was you know, Jim Crow era, but it was like there still was that 
that idea that there's this side of town for this these people and this side of town for the the other the, these people. I think you're hitting on something really important, like the idea of like not everything's for white people to take, right? And like to just walk in and be part of this family is very presumptuous in a lot of ways. And I think it would be a different story if Maniac McGee was were a different character, right? So I feel like he comes in and he's fulfilling a need in the family and they're fulfilling a need for him. That to me is very powerful, but I do think it, I think there's a little bit of a missed opportunity to go into what you were saying of like, you know, it's not just sad that he's being called a name and being singled out. Like there's a lot of, a lot to think about when you're, if you're a white person going into a community of color, right? Yeah. That you can't just take and just fit in and be accepted, like, and trusted immediately because there's a lot of history there. There is. And it's it's interesting because they don't go into the history in this book, but it's so obvious that it's there. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think that that's probably why they use it as a teaching tool so often in classrooms, because I think it would make a good segue into the history lessons about what happened to actual people. Mm-hmm. Because you're seeing the effects, but you don't see the cause. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. But the long and short of it is that he realizes that he is causing not only tension in the community, but real problems for the family that he's staying with. Like they're getting graffitied and it's sort of escalating. And he realizes that as welcoming as the family is, like he is a problem for them and he does what he has always done and runs away. And he ends up sleeping or he ends up being found in... The zoo. He, he ends up found, being found in the zoo. Being sorry, he ends up being found in the zoo by um, a custodian, an older man who's a custodian, and he's sleeping in the shoot water buffalo. On, Was it the water yeah. buffaloes? He's sleeping in the water buffalo <laughs> enclosure. Yeah, he's in the in the buffalo. Yeah, it's just buffalo. It's buffalo. Buffalo. Yeah. So he, he's sleeping in the Buffalo enclosure and he's found by a custodian, Grayson, who he ends up befriending. And Grayson becomes like a grandpa to him. Yeah, but, it's the sweetest thing. <laughs> but Maniac also becomes his teacher because he teaches Grayson how to read. Yeah. So there's this big, this is one thing that's a little bit lacking in the first family relationship is an exchange, right? So Maniac McGee is starving, literally. So Grayson like feeds him (laughs) a lot. And then they start just talking a little bit and they bond over baseball because obviously Maniac is awesome at sports. Um, And it turns out that Grayson used to be a professional baseball player in the minors and he's very lonely and he has nobody to tell his stories to. So he starts feeding Maniac not only food, but like these these tall tale stories of his exploits playing baseball, which I think any kind of family conversation is something that Maniac has starved for as much as food. But then like it turns out that 
yeah, as you said, Grayson doesn't know how to read. And so Maniac starts teaching Grayson how to read. And then Grayson starts teaching Maniac how to play ball. And then it just goes on further and further until they're both uh, living in the same space that Maniac started squatting in in the first place. And they turn it into a real home, even though it's like the storage room of the baseball dugout in town. It's it's like the, um, yeah, it's a storage room for the baseball team. And I just kept thinking about how cold the concrete floors are probably <laughs> I are. know. <laughs> but they have like a proper Christmas and they have, you know, it's it's really, really touching and it's really beautiful. And then this is another thing that just makes me so sad. Maniac McGee wakes up one morning and Grayson's just oh, dead. That line got me. Where <laughs> They have this amazing, beautiful Christmas and it's like snowy and wonderful and warm inside and Christmas carols and they made presents and a tree and they're like, three days later, Grayson was dead. And I'm like, I literally out loud went, oh, no, like while I was reading it. But it wasn't just that. It was like. Maniac was used to smelling coffee when he was waking up, but the coffee was cold. <laughs> the coffee pot was cold. I was like, oh, God, the guy's dead. And then they're like, he's dead. And I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. Um, but like, oh, yeah, when that happened, I literally was talking out loud to myself while I was reading it. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. It was just, there was a bit much. Because it was so, like, he finally had somebody to talk to and... I, oh, I don't know. It was that was really sad. Maniac undoes some racism that Grayson has. Yeah, that's true. That is that is a very uh, specific point that happens where where Maniac's explaining. Oh yeah, no, they they have toothbrushes like us. Like they, you know, they do this and that just like us. Our houses, like their houses, are are just like us. They're people, Grayson. Yeah. <laughs> and and Grayson's like, huh, crazy. Like, like, yeah, they're people. But yeah, so that's, it kind of is mentioned in passing, but very specifically because it, it becomes salient later on. So then, you know, Maniac starts running after the death, after the funeral. And he ends up running away from town and hiding in this like, <laughs> or going to sleep in this like historical village. So this part was weird to me. I had I had the experience as a child, pretty much maniac's age, of having both the toasty warm perfect Christmas and going to the place that he's talking about where he was freezing to death. Like they took me there to go sledding, but like it's freaking cold. It's it's just like this massive huge empty snowy place. And to go from one abruptly to the other is like the biggest jolt that's possible. So you um, you have family in Pennsylvania? Yeah. So um, I'm actually from New Jersey originally before Florida. And a lot of my family stayed there. And so Maniac was hiding in one of the historical like reconstructions in Valley Forge. And so my great aunt used to live about 10 minutes from there and would take us sledding when we went to visit for Christmas. I've got family more near Philly. Mm. So... I have not been to Valley Forge, but the butterscotch crimpet. Oh my God. I was going to ask if you have had them because that (laughs) is. Tasty cakes. Yeah, the tasty cakes. I was like, tasty cakes. Oh, when they said butterscotch crimpets, I was like, fuck yes. Like, uh, but you know, they used to not sell them down here. 
I know, no, because I remember because I would visit and then I would bring back Tasty Cakes and Uts chips. Yes. And it took like decades for both of those to make their way down here. The Tasty Cake Crimpets, we would buy cases and cases and cases and bring them back because you just could not get them here. Mm -hmm. Also birch beer, dad's birch beer. Mm. You couldn't get that down here either. So like those three things, I would like load up anytime I visit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so in case you don't know what we're talking about, the the snack that the, that they talked about in this book that like really hooked hooked Maniac McGee um, and the, he ate copious amounts of our tasty cake, butterscotch crimpets, not crumpets, but crimpets. And they're so delicious. And if you get them into your soul when you're a child, it will never let you go. Yeah. They're, they're A plus. A oh my plus God. plus. Oh my God. <laughs> Tasty cakes in general are amazing, but the butterscotch crumpets are incredible. When I was reading that, I was like, oh yes, a thousand percent. That's the snack we're having for this episode. That's so cool though. <laughs> I didn't know that you knew about that. And so, yeah, because like the, all the Pennsylvania Dutch stuff and the hex signs and stuff, it's like, I, you know, you, it's hard to describe to people who don't know anything about Pennsylvania. Yeah. I mean, technically my family is from New Jersey, but the mm. part of New Jersey that's right barely over from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And so like my great aunt lived in this neighborhood where like Chubby Checker lived down down the block. <gasps> that's so cool. I know. It was weird. And but like her house to us was like paradise because being from Florida, right? You come up in the middle of winter, it's snowy and beautiful and there's like picket fences and like deer outside and you can go sledding and we thought it was heaven. Nothing's trying to kill you actively all the time. I know. Maniac McGee runs away from the from the town. And he ends up going into one of the, like, the buildings at Valley Forge in the historical village. Yeah. And he, he's, like, he, like, gives up all hope. He literally, fit, like, actually says he's just waiting to die. Like, it's freezing cold. He's starving to death, truly. And he just has given up. And then he hears these voices, right? He's in this little historical reenactment hut. And he hears little kids' voices. And it's dark. So, I mean, like, my first thought the first time I read this was, like, ghosts. Yes. Yes. Civil War ghosts. No, no, Civil War. It's like <laughs> Revolutionary War ghosts. <laughs> it did have that tone to it. But it's not ghosts. It's these two little kids. And they've run away from home and they're, like, trying to go somewhere. And they have, like... I forget what they packed. Was it potato chips or like something? And they thought they'd be fine. And like, it's so cold and desolate that truly like Maniac McGee is waiting to literally die. And it's not like being melodramatic or fatalistic or anything. He's, it's just realistic. Like he's going to die and he's kind of okay with it. But then he's like, oh, okay, I got to save these kids (laughs) because they're so woefully (laughs) underprepared. And it turns out that they're the younger brothers of his one of his foes back in the in the town that he was running from. They are the younger McNabs, and he ticked off the elder McNab with some of his athletic feats. Yeah, like literally as he ran into town that first time, like mm-hmm. this guy was like, "I hate you forever," and has been tormenting him ever since. But uh, he drags these two little kids back to town and realizes that they are the younger siblings of this bully. And the bully's like, I guess you're okay-ish. 
So, but he brings them back home and their house is terrifying. Like their house is, their house is akin to Matt's in the house of the scorpions, uh, like food roach pit. Like they have this like ramshackled house that smells like grease because they only eat fast food. And then there's a big hole in the floor from the second floor and then the ceiling from the second floor that just opens out into the living room of the first floor. Yes, and they have this crazy, drunky, kind of white supremacist dad who encourages them in all kinds of, like, weird and violent behavior. Like, very conspiracy theory, like, they're coming to get us paranoia. Like, the reflexive kind where you're assuming that everybody else that you discriminate against is as violently opposed to you as you are to them, even though they don't even know you exist. Yeah. And it's it's really upsetting. Like, but Maniac McGee realizes that he's kind of the little kid's only hope. And so he takes on this very parent role for them and gets them going to school and staying at school and doing their work and making sure they're kind of clean and all the while living in this like house with a hole in it and a bunker that has been built in it and is filled with roaches and poop and like it's <laughs> just like <laughs> It's it's a very interesting study. I feel like he's, I mean, I'm he, obviously the author is deliberately comparing like the best and the worst of like the black and the white side of town. Like, there's no way to say that like the white side of town is better than the black side of town. You know what I mean? Like, he's showing you the absolute worst and best in both sides. I don't know if he shows a worst in the black side of town. Well, I think the worst is the is the assumption. Well, I guess what I'm saying, you're right. He doesn't give you like a worst family on the black side of town. He gives you like the biases that the white people have about the black side of town. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's that's definitely true. But in, in all of this, you know, I'm on Maniac's side in all of this, but I am not on his side when he brings slash makes Mars Bar <gasps> no, come to the McNabb so house. I thought that was super weird, and I didn't get a resolution from it that made sense other than, like, I don't, I still don't even know what that was about. Like, it was couched in terms of being part of, like, a plot point, but... Why would you take your black friend into a house of a white supremacist that's built a bunker and thinks that a race war is about to break out? Yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible to do that. Um, I feel like so there's there's a good family on both sides of the tracks that loves him. Right. And then there is a bully on each side of the tracks who's mean to him, who eventually sort of becomes his friend. But Mars Bar is still a kind of a, is still a bully at the time that this happens, right? He doesn't like come to a party with Maniac Miggy because they're super best friends. He's like, oh, you dared me. You don't think I'll do it. Like, I think he's trying to intimidate Mars Bar into realizing that he's not as bad as he thinks that he is, but also trying to show him that on the white side of town, things are way shittier than you would, oh, this 
probably I need to stop cussing for this episode. That, Why? That, I don't, I don't we say fuck and shit all the time. <laughs> well, he's trying to show Mars Bar that not only is Mars Bar not as big of a bad guy as he thinks he is, like he's not such a, a big bad dude, but also that over on the white side, like things are also pretty shitty sometimes. Like I think it is a horrible lapse in judgment to have done that that way, but I think he's trying to prove a point to Mars Bar badly. Yeah. But effectively. I I think that's the only, for me, misstep that I see in the book, like where it just doesn't make any sense. And it seems very likely that Mars Bar's, Mars Bar will be harmed uh, f- like physically and maybe irrevocably. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that Maniac thinks that through and thinks about the safety element of it really. And I can see what you're saying, but I think that's a big misstep in this book and in uh, an otherwise really interesting and definitely progressive book. Yeah. I, well, and I'm, I'm trying to see it as best I can through an early 90s lens in which that would not be as prevalent a risk as it is right now like any white person who does that to a black person these days like it is it's criminally negligent you know what I mean like it's such a visible and real risk right now to do something like that but I think in 1990 it might not have been seen that way I mean I think it was then too it's just that it wouldn't have been in the news yeah like it would have been something that the black community would have known about for years and it wouldn't have made it to the white news. But would Jerry Spinelli have known about it? I mean, I don't know. I don't I, I don't know. But I mean, when you think about things like the Atlanta child murders. Yeah. Right. Like that's something that the black community had to try to handle entirely on their own and got no help from the white, you know, police white community slash police establishment. Right. But that what I'm um, saying is that like that this is a white author at that time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So like we hadn't had the national conversations that we've been having lately. Yeah. Not that it wouldn't I mean, have been a risk in real life, but like in a book, I'm not sure if it would have been so obvious a risk. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. I just, I do think it's, I mean, for God's sake, they were they were there with bunkers and, and guns, but yeah. So I, I think that I mean I think I see what you're saying, but I also think that it was it was part of trying to tell this story and boil it down that didn't quite get to the point that I think it meant to make. I think it ended up making a different point than it meant to make, um, even in the '90s. I can I can understand that too. Yeah. And then, you know, Maniac just decides, like, F it. I don't belong <laughs> anywhere. I'm going to go back to the to the buffalo enclosure. Which, by the way, have you ever been up close to a buffalo? They're huge. Holy moly. Yeah. I, I can't believe that he slept with them. Maybe in the 90s, buffaloes were kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I can I only know. assume they would be very toasty. Yeah. I mean, and I guess, too, these are domesticated buffalo. They have, like kids like baby buffalo in captivity that's what they're talking about and stuff so i mean maybe it's a different type of buffalo but like just Mm. the just the rubbing in the dirt alone even if they didn't mean to do it they could just mash you to death yes easily easily 
So, so yeah. So Amanda and Mars bar end up like getting him out of the Buffalo. I know. I love Amanda so much. She's just like, get up and come home, dummy. (laughs) And he does. Yeah. And so I can only, I think we can only assume that he goes back to live with the Beals now with a lot more information, a lot more education and a lot more awareness of like the sacrifices and or danger they may be making or are in to make him part of the family, but also this awareness of like his responsibility to that family and to be someone who brokers change. Yeah. And he has kind of a new relationship with Mars bar where they, they start running at the same time every day. Like, cause one of the things they both like to do is run early in the morning and it turns into a friendship. Right. And so it's gradual and it's reluctant a little bit, but it it grows. And I think that that is an indicator of the way that Maniac McGee is is more aware of, of the community that he's living in and not just the specific family. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's very interesting. I think aside from... You know, we didn't even talk about a lot of the tall tale stuff. Like he undoes this giant knot and gets free pizza for life. He's allergic to pizza, which is. Yeah, he's allergic to pizza, which I mean, you know, yeah. Okay. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just like they mention it in every like legend about him that he was allergic to pizza. He's allergic to pizza. And so and then it was just ironic that he wins lifetime free pizza or whatever. No, yeah, and and he, I mean, he does all these fantastic things aside, like on top of, like these race relation, like not race relation, but dealing, like examining re- racism, teaching people how to undo some racist and stereotype, say stereotyping attitudes, dealing with like childhood homelessness, which is not a topic I've ever seen dealt with in quite this way. Yeah, dealing with family and what family means and who am I if I want to be in a family and what can I contribute to a family and personal responsibility. There's so much packed into this really small book. I mean, it's very small for what it does. And like I said, I think there's that one misstep and I I don't entirely understand where that was coming from. But I do think that ultimately, you know, Mars Bar escapes the McNabb's house fine and there's a lot of growth that happens after that between the two of them, which I think is important. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say this is something that shouldn't be read. But I do think that scene is just a, such a strange scene that it really needs to be talked about a lot. But I think overall it's a really – it's progressive for its time and it's got so much going on. It pulls off so many things at once. It's kind of – it's pretty incredible how much it pulls off. It's true. And it's not – it's not preachy and it's not dull. Like I know that a couple of the reviews called it long-winded, but I found it very, uh, very readable and very fast-paced. Yeah, and there's another review that talks about like the mythical, like the myth. I guess the mythical approach to racism. And I, you know, I think that at this point we've gotten to a place where it needs to be addressed, right? So. If it needs to be addressed in a book where a kid undoes a knot that's ne- that no one else could ever undo and then wins a lifetime of pizza and he's allergic to pizza along with so many other weird things that he does in this book that are 
funny and fantastic. I think why not? Right. Like, I don't think there's anything mythical about that part of it, about him, his humanity and like him really understanding about racism and about how different people live and perceptions that people have of just their neighbors. Yeah. I mean, obviously like him being able to undo a knot that nobody has been able to undo can be seen as a metaphor for him undoing, you know, metaphorical knots, like the, the, the troublesome quandary of like the racial relations in the town. But it, it still it never comes off as sort of like I'm teaching you a lesson. Like it's just it feels yeah. like a story and it's a really readable story. And so that was that was a good Marcy, what are your read alikes? Well, one, it's not a read alike, I guess it would be a watch alike, would be the sandlot. Like from the first page, one thing that struck me was the tone that is similar to the sandlot, which in case you don't know, is a really hilarious movie. And one thing we didn't really touch on talking about the book is that actually some of the plot points, some of the sort of tall tale mythology that Maniac McGee does is like very, very similar plot wise to the sandlot and the ball that goes into the backyard that he has to retrieve. Like that is a whole another thing that we didn't even touch on. But if you enjoy this book, you will probably very much enjoy that movie. Also, it was very, for me, reminiscent of another Newbery book, The Wednesday Wars, and the companion book to that, Okay for Now, which are by Gary Schmidt, and which are probably some of my favorite Newbery books ever. Well, probably one of my favorite Newbery books ever, and one of the books that, as I have said before, is my absolute top, like, it was robbed of the Newbery, non-Newbery book. But it has that same tone of, like, kids around town doing these tall tale things and having adventures and, like, being super readable but also touching on a lot of deeper issues. And they're they're also kind of sad, too, while they're also fun to read. So it's, it's a weird juxtaposition, but really great books. And then my last one is Pictures of Hollis Woods, which is another, <laughs> yet another Newbery book, which we've already reviewed. And if you go back and listen to it, you can hear us talk about it. But the thing that reminded me of that is in Pictures of Hollis Woods, Hollis kind of runs away, but with her elder caretaker to the woods at Christmas time. And so like the scenes where Maniac McGee is with Grayson in the baseball storage room and they're having a wonderful Christmas just felt very similar to that in tone and just sort of that specific moment in the story. So my read-alike, my main read-alike is Ghost by Jason Reynolds. Oh, and it is about it's about another young runner, um, a middle school runner named Ghost, who wants to be the fastest sprinter. But he has a lot of things to deal with from his past. And you have a cast of characters just like this. You have a lot of running just like this, just like Maniac McGee. And then um, it's the beginning of his track series, which I believe has four books altogether. And they all center on one of the kids on the track team or four of, of the kids on the track team. So there's Patina and Lou and Sonny. So those are all, I would recommend that, but starting with Ghost, it's just got a really, it's got a great perspective of 
it's got a, a little bit of that perspective because Ghost is a legend in his own mind <laughs> before <laughs> he does anything. And then there's also the family aspects and some of the other themes as well. Plus anything so, Jason Reynolds writes is just magical. It is. It's, it really is. This is one of our COVID episodes, as in uh, recorded during the COVID pandemic. So we are not together recording. And once we are allowed to record together, we will be doing, we will be drinking lots of drinks. And <laughs> um, in this case, having a butterscotch crumpet. Oh my God. We should just make a mountain of them and just like dive in. <laughs> it's just like this. <laughs> it be covered in, in crimpet, crimpet frosting. Crimpet frosting. <laughs> You wouldn't even be able to hear us talking, just like the crinkling of wrappers the whole time. Uh, thanks so much for listening to the Newberry Chart Podcast today. We were talking about Maniac McGee by Jerry Spinelli, which was the 1991 Newberry Medal winner. We are combining our 1991 and 1992 seasons because both award lists were so short. Our next episode will be The Wright Brothers, How They Invented the Airplane by Russell Friedman, which is the first 1992 honor book that we'll be discussing. Please find us on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps keep the podcast going. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.